Hi, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. What we try to do with these SALT Talks is the same way we do at our global conferences is provide a platform for big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts uh, across investing, business, entrepreneurship, and politics. Uh, today, we're very excited to welcome Mark Lazary uh, to SALT Talks. Mark has been to several of our in-person conferences, and we thank him for joining us today. Uh, Mark is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Avenue Capital, which is a global alternative investment manager focused on distressed and undervalued debt and equity opportunities uh, across U.S., Europe, and Asia. In 1995, Mark formed Avenue with his sister, Sonia Gardner, with less than $10 million in capital from friends and family. And today, Avenue is one of the largest distressed debt investors globally, managing around $9.7 billion as of May 31st, with headquarters in New York City, three offices across Europe, five offices throughout Asia, and an office in Silicon Valley. Mark is known as a pioneer in distressed investing, which has been the focus of his professional career for 35 years and will be the focus of our conversation today. Uh, Mark is currently a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and serves on various boards as an advisor and director for both for-profit and non-for-profit enterprises. He's also a co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, which currently own the best record in the NBA as the season gets ready to resume. Uh, they also have one of the best players in the NBA, the Greek freak, Giannis Antetokounmpo. If you have any questions for Mark during our talk today, please enter them into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. Mark, thanks again for joining us. Uh, conducting the interview today is going to be Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. Anthony, I'll kick it over to you for the interview. All right. Well, I'm going to give you a big shout out, Darcy, for being able to pronounce that player's name. I know you practiced it all evening and it was very well done. It was well executed. So, uh, Mark, first of all, congratulations on the season. And I just found out that your uh, beautiful daughter is expecting twins shortly. So mazel tov on that. Thank you. And, uh, we, we wish you great success always. And uh, you're a terrific friend. Uh, but a, a lot of people that are joining us and they're joining from all over the world, Mark, they don't totally know your background. I think you have one of the more fascinating backgrounds in the hedge fund industries. I just wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about your background first, and then we'll get into the markets discussion. Sure. Um, I was born in Morocco. I ended up, um, you know, we came to the United States when I was seven. I uh, grew up in Hartford, uh, went to college on a scholarship, went to law school, um, practiced law a little bit. Then I went to work for the Bass Brothers and ran, then I ran money for them. Then I went off on my own, um, ended up doing that for a while. And then we started Avenue in 95, <clears throat> mainly uh, with my money and that of the Bass family. Um, and, you know, the firm grew pretty big. I mean, we got to be as big, um, I think in five years, we were a billion dollars. Then uh, five years later, we were $22 billion. Um, after the crisis hit, I think we were down 25 in 08. Then between 09 to 11, we sort of doubled the money back. Um, and then I gave back about half the capital. Um, big chunk of the money that we run is mine right now. And really what we try to do is find sort of special situations. Got lucky, 
in that about five years ago, I was able to buy the Bucks. Um, that's actually been a blast. Um, we got very lucky in that Giannis ended up blossoming into um, one of the best players in the NBA. And then starting in three weeks, no, six weeks, we start up in three weeks to, in um, Orlando. And in six weeks to seven weeks, the season restarts. So hopefully we'll win uh, an NBA championship. Well, good for you. Okay. Well, we're certainly rooting for you guys. And I have a lot of my, my friends are limited partners of yours in the Bucks, And so, uh, yep. and you guys built a brand new, beautiful uh, arena a few years ago. And so uh, God bless you guys on that. Let's, let's shift gears and talk about the markets. And let me, let me take you back to 2008. You're down 25. Uh, the world's uh, a different place 12 years ago, of course, but this was a financially focused banking crisis that spilled over into the, the rest of the world. Take us through your thought process there, and then I want to do a comparative analysis uh, to where we are today. Sure. I, th I think in 08, look, you were there. The biggest worry in 08 was, were we going to be around? And what I mean by that is, was the financial system going to be there? And that, when you invested, you just didn't know, right? And that was the big fear was, were the banks going to be there? And if the banks were there, that was great. You know, then you would, you'd have issues, but it wouldn't be that big issues. But if the banks weren't there, um, then you were going to go into a huge depression. So you just didn't know. Um, that's the big difference between today, to be blunt. The biggest difference between today and then is that today, we all know everything will be fine in two years, right? The people will be back out. There'll be a virus, there'll be a vaccine, so on and so forth. But you know, the question is, how long does it take to get back to normal? So, so is, this, is this worse? Is 2020 worse than 2008? Similar? Different? How so? What, what's your opinion? I, I feel more comfortable investing today than I did in 08. In 08, I was petrified as to whether or not we'd still be in business. Today, you know you will. It's just a question of timing. Today, it's, a, it's really a liquidity issue. Uh, does a company have enough capital to last until people come back? So what you want to do is you want to invest in companies that have that liquidity, because if they don't, um, they're just going to have issues. So I, I know your principal focus is in the bond market in the stress debt, but usually the, the, the credit analysts, the best credit analysts make very good equity analysts as well. What are your thoughts on the equity markets right now? Uh, their recent run-up, the current valuation, and sort of the, your, your one- to two-year time horizon on equities? Look, I think at the end of the day, the equity market is telling you that everything is going to be fine. And part of that is if you sort of look at the fortune, you know, the companies that are in the market, they've got the liquidity to last. So they're actually gaining market share. Um, and the reason they're doing that is they've cut costs by a huge amount. So I, I get all that, but the problem is cutting costs means that you fired a ton of people. And so, you know, I would ask you, I mean, you talk to people and I talk to people, how many, how many, how many people are getting rehired? Like there's 40 million Americans that are unemployed. How many do you think companies rehire? They rehire half of them, three quarters, right? You know, what I'm hearing is it's sort of, they'll hire 50 to 
Well, if you think about that, 25% of Americans are unemployed. That's 10 million. Two thirds of GDP is consumer spending. There's no way that in essence, people are gonna be spending money the way they did when they're unemployed. So I think the market is ahead of itself. I understand it because it's telling you everything's gonna be fine in two years. But I think between now and the next two years, you're gonna have a huge amount of issues. So, so you worry about the market then. The valuation of equities then is probably fully priced. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, would you wanna be an equity owner today? Like it's, it, it's well, me, me personally, I well, I, I, like you, I've spent my life in the bond market, but unfortunately I, we've been in structured credit. So you know, that was sort yeah. of like the uh, ground zero target uh, for the start. pandemic. You know, so, oh. so people will say to me, well, why, why can't I just own Tesla and the FANG stocks? Why do I need to own structured credit? And obviously I spent a good part of my day explaining that, which I think is a great long-term conservative investment. But, but my worry about the equity market is, uh, you know, it's just very thin. You've got 12 to 15 stocks driving that market. Uh, you take those stocks out of equities, the equity market is down. Uh, yes, there's been some rotation recently, uh, but it's not clear how durable that is. Uh, but, you know, you look- I agree with you. I don't think it's durable. It doesn't really make sense with all the issues, but I think it's all gonna become clear in the next couple of months. Right. In the next couple of months, we're going to see this reopening of the country and how much are people going to be spending, right? And that'll tell you how quickly we're going to get back to normal. I think it's just going to take time. And as soon as the market realizes that, I think you're going to see that the market's going to come back in. Well, and, and you've spent your life in the distressed credit markets. And, I, you know, somebody said to me yesterday, and I'm curious your reaction that this is a great time for distress because you, you've got non-performing companies, uh, but you have huge governmental stimulus going on. And where those companies are really a victim to the pandemic more to than their bad decision-making. And so they're getting some available capital and access from the government for help. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Where do you see this distress cycle versus other past distress cycles that you've trafficked in? So I think there's a huge difference between today and the past. The biggest opportunity today is really investing in companies that are in bankruptcy and, or that you're gonna get involved in restructurings. So you know, I'll, I'll just give you the most recent example. Think of Hertz. So Hertz, a month ago, I mean, uh, four months ago was investment grade. The bonds traded 25 base points above U.S. Treasuries. That was the premium you were getting for investing in Hertz. Hertz then ends up filing for bankruptcy because they couldn't get any liquidity. They didn't have excess collateral. So nobody was willing to lend them more money. Right? They had All their collateral was in those bonds. So the banks and the bondholders were like, don't care. We've got our collateral. We don't care what's going to happen. Company files, all right, do you know where the stock just, because now that the company has liquidity and they can last, the stock has gone from a dollar to five, right? The unsecured bonds have gone from five cents to 25 cents. So for us, what we do is we get involved when the company files, because at that point, they've got the liquidity to do what you just said, which is to last for another year or two until people start coming back. 
So today is a far, far better time because I could invest every time today at liquidation values. Normally you can't. And I'm getting paid a premium. If things turn out, I'll do exceptionally well. I can make two, three times my money. If the company has to liquidate, that's okay. Then we'll end up making our money on that liquidation. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think that's brilliant and specific to Hertz, but let's talk more broadly about opportunities you see. Are they mostly in the U.S. mark, or are you looking internationally as well? Or They're uh, everywhere. I mean, I think for us, it's what you're finding is you've got huge opportunities in Europe. Same thing in Asia. The biggest difference is a ton of money is being raised here in the United States. So you don't have as much money being raised in Europe or in Asia for the same thing. So you're finding that the returns you can generate there are Asia, I would say it's sort of 25 to 30. Europe is 20 to 25 and US, I would tell you is 15 to 20. But US, look, just in the last couple of months, I mean, almost every retailer you know, JCPenney, Crew, uh, Neiman Marcus has filed, you've got, you know, telecommunications company, Intelsat has filed, Frontier has filed. So you've just got over and over again, anybody who's had issues, and people are actually taking advantage of this. They're saying, now's a great time for me to go into bankruptcy, clean up my balance sheet, and come out a lot stronger. So at least for us, I think you're going to have anywhere between $500 billion to a trillion dollars of opportunities worldwide. So that, in, in some ways, then it's better than the 2008 crisis, right? Yeah, because the, ba the banks are firm. The Fed has already started the process way earlier. They're yeah. hitting it with way more capital, way more stimulus coming from the Congress. Uh, so what's the worry then uh, when you're, you're sitting around saying to yourself, okay, I see the opportunity, but what are the risks associated with that opportunity? Um, look, I think ultimately at the end of the day, what's actually been shocking, and I think for you as well, I was surprised at what the Fed did. Like I, I hadn't envisioned that they could do that. Um, and you're seeing that there's bipartisan support to end up getting money to Americans, you know, through unemployment and through the PPE. I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, the risk really to the system is that you've got these zero interest rates and there's just so much capital that's being put in there. Um, but that's a it's not a problem for today. It's gonna to be a problem five years from now. I think for us today, we could take advantage of that and we can do really well. So I'm not really worried about the risks today. I think you're gonna have some fundamental problems five years from now. Okay, so let's elaborate on that. What, what are those fundamental problems? In inflation is obviously a huge, potential issue. What are some of the other issues? Look, I think what you're going to have is the Fed's just going to have too big a balance sheet, right? And then as you try to unwind that, um, you're going to be in an area where you've got unemployment, you've got lower receipts. And look at the biggest risk that we run is one simple thing. It's where are interest rates, right? Rates right now are at zero and yet our deficit keeps growing and growing, right? I'm, I'm sorry, it's sort of a, you know, where we're owing money. So when you think about that, that if rates just moved up to one, two, three percent, 
um, the amount of money the United States is going to be spending on interest is going to be huge. So you're going to have less for social services and for everything else. So I, I think we're creating a problem five, 10 years from now. But look, for today, with rates at zero, I mean, I, I think people have no choice but to invest in the market. If you're going to go out and buy a corporate bond, um, you know, when you were talking about structured credit, on the structured credit side today, you can make 20% plus, right? So what's your choice? Are you going to make 20% plus or are you going to leave it in a U.S. Treasury to make a half a percent? Let's focus on that for one second because I want you to explain to our viewers and listeners how you make 20% plus in structured credit uh, and what that real opportunity is. And then I want to ask you about our deficit. But, but sure. go back to structured credit for a second, Look, which is near and dear to my heart, Mark. <laughs> Look, a lot of it is, you know, what's the price that you can buy that at today, right? So you're, the, the problem that you ended up having on the structured credit side is people were being forced to sell and you ended up having left and you had leverage, right? So if you sort of think about it, even as something, if you were two times levered or three times levered um, and all of a sudden something drops by 10 points, that means you're down 20 or 30%. So that's just taking a little bit longer to come back. But in an environment today where you can go buy that debt anywhere between sort of, you know, 50 to 80 cents on the dollar, um, you're going to make, you've got your interest component that you're going to make, and then you're going to make your capital appreciation. Look, I think on the structured credit side, I, I, I was being nice in saying you're going to make 20, I think you're going to make substantially more than 20%. Well, you know, we, we, we think so. I mean, we, we had a 60% move over three years, 2009, 10, and 11. Our portfolio right now is it's, it's yielding over 11% just in, if, you, if you took a snapshot of the whole asset. But, but you, you're, you're, you're making an important point about five years from now. You, you and I see the same sort of thing. Fed is flooding money into the marketplace. That cures the temporary ills of the market, dislocations of prices and so forth. Uh, you know, I have stipulated uh, and I've gotten a reaction to this that unfortunately monetary policy being a blunt instrument, it helps people that own the assets. And so yes. if we own assets, the assets go up, but the people that don't have the assets, if you really analyze their wages, they never really catch up. And so it's sort of a bit of an irony, but uh, the, the Fed sort of created Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. The, the rise of populism and that whole nationalist movement is coming from that separation. And so what I'm worried about is we're doing it again, but we're doing it on steroids. This is like QE infinity. Uh, it'll certainly impact asset prices, help large scale corporations, but there's been a transfer of wealth from small businesses uh, to places like Amazon, frankly, that have the scale and the durability and the survivability in a crisis like this. What's no, your reaction I, to that? I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, don't see, I don't see the benefit that is going down to sort of the middle class or lower middle class. Um, because if you don't own a home, if you don't have these hard assets, if you didn't own you know, stocks, which people aren't owning. I mean, it's not. So I, I, think, I think everybody sees that things are getting better, yet they're not participating in that. So I think you're dead right. I think that's what creates all these issues that we're ultimately having. 
But let, let, let's address the deficit for a second, because I know you're, you're politically minded, as am I. Uh, we're, we're looking out. We're going to print the three-plus trillion dollar deficit now. Uh, the CBO is talking about $3.7 trillion for this year. Uh, you, you're, you're obviously going to be printing a deficit in the next couple of years to that magnitude, if not slightly smaller. Uh, is it is it sustainable? You know, there's a there's a modern monetary theory, as we both know. Stephanie Kilton, we're going to be interviewing her next week on her new book, The Deficit Myth. We just had Zach Carter on yesterday talking about the life of John Maynard Keynes. Uh, and the notion from those intellectuals are that you can get away with this sort of forever. Do you think that that's the case or do you think it comes home to roost? Look, can you get away with it forever? Sure, if rates are at zero. I mean, it's not, it's not really that complicated. If you're, paying, if you're paying 25 bips to go borrow money, um, it's actually pretty easy to keep on borrowing money. So what, well, what would cause rates to go up? Inflation would be one factor. Uh, demand for the money would be another factor. Um, you, you think demographically, Mark, we're in the specter of deflation due to the upside down nature of the way the world is aging? I don't, I don't know, right? I'm not an economist, so I don't know. But when I look at it, what I find is that when all of a sudden people, there, there comes a moment in time when people believe you can't pay your bills, right? So if you sort of think of what happened with Greece and if you, you know, you, you look at other countries, what always ends up happening is when you borrow money, nobody ever thinks you can default, right? The, the only reason somebody's lending you money is because they believe you're going to pay it back. It's only when that perception changes. So all of a sudden, Greece went from borrowing money at 2 3% to borrowing money at 20%, and you had sort of the European crisis. So today, the demand for safety is so great that I think at the end of the day, this, this could last five or 10 years right. where you're able to borrow money at, look, in Europe today, you're, you're, you're paying negative rates. Somebody's paying you. I mean, so I, I think that in and of itself, if that'll continue for five or 10 years, yeah, your deficit can keep on growing. So I, I could see it lasting for a while, but I just don't understand intellectually. And maybe part of it is because you and I grew up with rates of 20%, right? Sure. So mm -hmm. it's kind of hard for us to fathom that something can only go down, that it can't go back up. So well, maybe I mean, we're wrong. So I, listen, I told, this is why you and I are in the same camp on a lot of things, but the MMT people, what they would say, well, Greece is a different situation because huh? they ceded the drachma to the Euro and they ceded the control of that currency to that sort of central planning. Uh, yep. The United States has its own currency, and I'll give you a quote from Stephanie Kilton. One stroke of a computer key, we could create $23 trillion and wipe out our, our, our deficit. So uh, we're going to get into that with her next week in terms of what that would mean to society and what that would mean to confidence in, in fiat currency. But, but let's take it around the horn before I open it up to questions to our, uh, our listeners and viewers. Uh, equities. Uh, Decidedly neutral, fully priced there. What's your opinion? Equities? Not a buyer. Not a buyer. Distressed no debt, huge opportunity. Today, I think on the debt side, massive opportunities. Yeah. What about investment grade more? I think I think it's fine. I think it's 
I, I don't know if you're getting paid enough of a premium for it, but you know, you're, you're making what three to 5%. I mean, two to 4%, whatever that number is. So I don't, I, I think that's okay, but I don't think there's a lot to do there. High yield. High yield. I think it's, you'll be doing okay. Um, I think there's still a little bit of room to go on that. Um, but I think in today's environment, you know, trying to make five to 8% on that, I think makes sense. All right. We've already discussed uh, the, uh, the structured credit. You and I are both obviously very favorable and bullish on that. What about digital currencies? Ever look at those, have an opinion there? Think anything of them? You know, I did. Um, I used to own um, a few. Uh, I think I, I made a little money on it and then I got out. Um, I think today, look, I, I, I get it if people want to do it. I just, I think- well, why'd you get out? Tell our, tell our people why you got out. Why'd you get out? Oh, I bought it mainly because I thought it'd be, I, I thought it'd be a good hedge for what I was doing and I wanted to see if I could make some money on it. When it doubled, um, I realized I still didn't understand why it doubled. Um, so that's the reason I got out. I've got a big, uh, I sort of try to only invest in things I understand. And I realized, look, I fully didn't comprehend everything that was happening on the digital side. So since I didn't, um, I was just going to sell. Okay. So, so let, let, let's give that one an incomplete or we're, you and I are still trying to figure that out. It could be a sign of our age that we don't know what the hell's going on in that. Uh, before I turn it over, uh, a quick political question, uh, because you've been involved in politics a very long period of time. This is going to be a very interesting theatrical event come November. Uh, are you raising money for Joe Biden? Or are you involved there? Or what's, your, what, what's going on? Yeah, I'm raising money for Joe. Uh, I've been pretty involved in it. Um, we've done a bunch of fundraisers. So, so far, so good. Look, I think I think the election, and you get it, um, the election is going to be pretty simple. Um, are you happy with the way things are? If you are, you're voting for Donald Trump. If you're not, you're voting for Biden. It, I, I think Americans, you know, when everything is going well, Americans were, look, I, they weren't paying to the noise in Washington and they were focused on what was happening with them. So I think Trump had an advantage there. Now that things aren't going well, um, the question is, look, do I think he's the person who's gonna help me? I, I think most Americans are coming to the conclusion, I can't deal with all this noise. I mean, you know, you've worked for him. I mean, you know what it, what it is. He loves more noise and the more noise there is, the better it is, except it seems like in this environment, that's just not working. Well, I mean, he's he, he's losing. And I, I want to be objective on a call like this, you know. He, but he he's he's got a very ardent base of support, uh, sort of that hard to believe thirty five to thirty nine percent. But the numbers, if I was still involved with him or involved in the campaign, the numbers on women over the age of fifty, Mark, and I'm talking about the national numbers, the swing state numbers. Uh, he's put himself almost in an irreparable position there. I mean. Anything's possible with him. I was with him on uh, the October 7th Access Hollywood debacle. And we did flash polling that weekend into the next week prior to the second debate, down 13, 
and he, he came back and won the election. So anything's possible. It wouldn't rule anything out, but those are very big numbers. To uh, those in, yeah, yeah very, 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 very hard to come back from those numbers. But again, it's Donald Trump, so we'll have to see what happens. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to John Darcy. I know we have some uh, uh, questions from our uh, audience uh, out, out there. So go ahead, John. What do you have for Mark? Yeah, we're going to start with the NBA. Mark, you mentioned that uh, sort of a mini training camp is starting in three weeks and the season's going to resume in six weeks. As an owner, what was the process like of figuring out how the NBA was going to come back? And how do you think this pandemic uh, is going to affect the league going forward? Well, I think the, the biggest question was the health and safety of the players, right? So how could you do that? And the way we ended up doing it was to do everything in Orlando so that um, ultimately you could have a sort of a safe environment. Um, we ended up deciding to have 22 teams to try and have about eight regular season games. And the reason for that was to get the players in shape for the playoffs, um, you know, so that they would get into sort of game shape by the time the playoffs started. Uh, <clears throat> the real question is a little bit of what you said. What happens next season? You can't have a season without fans. You really can't. I mean, um, for most teams, they can't survive that way because a lot of their revenue comes from ticket sales. So I, I think that's why the league has pushed back the start of next season. And we've pushed it back to December or January. And the hope is that by doing that, um, that people will be able to come into stadiums and whether there's a vaccine or there'll be more information regarding this. Um, and maybe people just come into the stadiums now, you know, you're seeing it in all the marches and the protests that are going around the country. Everybody's walking around with a mask and maybe, um, you know, I think for, for the vast, vast majority of us, the idea of wearing a mask, you know, a year ago was unthinkable. And today you're seeing everybody wearing one. So that may be the way that people start coming into stadiums. Thanks, Mark. Uh, the next question revolves around, you, know, you talked about how you've been very successful internationally, including in Asia. How do you see the current international climate, which is sort of shaped by distrust, lack of international controls and cohesion, uh, bringing the economy to a more nationalistic versus globalistic framework going forward? And how do you think it affects general investment opportunities in Asia, given you know, U.S.-China tensions in particular? Um. Well, really what it's doing is it's creating more opportunities for you. And the simple reason for that is when things are more global, there's just more capital coming in, right? So that everybody wants to invest in a region. When things are more nationalistic, all of a sudden capital is moving up because people are nervous. Um, so for us, that's actually why we try to invest in countries that follow English law. So you'll invest in Singapore, you'll invest in Hong Kong, you'll invest in Australia, you'll invest in India, you'll invest in regions, South Korea, where the capital that if there's a problem, you've got a legal system that's gonna help. So I think for us right now, um, you know, I would say to you a year ago, there was a lot of capital, there was more competition that we were seeing in Asia and in Europe. Today, we're seeing much less competition. 
So uh, within the distress space, obviously energy has gone through a, a major dislocation due to a variety of different factors. What do you see as the opportunity uh, from a distress perspective within energy? I mean, energy has been a bloodbath. I mean, I, I think you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, the opportunity today is you're coming into companies um, that have had huge issues, mainly because of where the price of oil is. And can you invest today based on, you know, saying that oil is going to stay at $30. And if you can do that, um, you're going to make a fortune of money if oil moves back. Even if it, if it stays where it is, you're going to have companies that are going to be able to survive. So you've got to pick those survivors, um, but it's gotten a lot harder. It's just, it's just, I think on the energy side, you've got a lot of opportunities, but you could still have a huge amount of problems. Looking at the distress space in particular, if you could pick one financial instrument or one sector or one specific trade that you think is the most compelling right now, what would it be? I think you want to be in the secure debt of a lot of these companies because that's become the fulcrum security. So in the past, um, you would either you were trying to figure out what was the fulcrum security. And today, because of what's happened with the virus and companies needing capital, that senior secured debt has become that fulcrum security and you're either going to get paid off or you're going to create the equity of that company at a pretty cheap price. So that's been the big, the big fundamental difference today. You recently launched the Avenue Dislocation Fund. You talked about you know, the size of the opportunity set that you see in distressed right now and, and moving forward over the next couple of years. Uh, just talk a little bit more about that. You know, do you think the Fed's actions to help support the junk bond market, for example, has, has trimmed that opportunity set? Or do you think there's going to be you know, a large volume of, of opportunities in distress? I, I don't think the Fed, to be blunt, has really done much for the distressed market. <clears throat> it's done a lot to provide liquidity for investment-grade companies. So when Anthony and I were talking about that earlier, that's why you're not seeing as much opportunity on the investment-grade side. Um, you know, if you think same thing, structured credit, if you think on the mortgage side, Fed didn't come in and help those markets. So in those markets, you still have huge opportunities. That's the reason why we're raising a new fund is that we're seeing that at least today, you're going to have anywhere close to sort of half a trillion to a trillion dollars of opportunities over the course of the next year. Um, so for us, we want to take advantage on the small cap, mid cap and large cap. Um, so that's going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity. So going back to politics for just a moment, you know, Barack Obama came out and said that if he were running on a, a platform based on today's, you know, societal conditions, economic conditions, that he would run on a different platform and he would govern in a different way uh, than he did during his tenure in office. How do you think knowing uh, the Biden camp and, and knowing other people within the Democratic Party, what do you think a Biden administration would look like from a policy perspective? Look, I think at the end of the day, what Biden's going to do, um, he's going to move a little left. And you'll see that because it seems like, you know, the country that I think was center um, is moving a little bit further to the left. So I think you'll start seeing that. Um, and I think that's what Obama meant. Um, it seems like the country is moving, but you know, you would have thought it was moving more into the middle. I think it's moving, you know, if you sort of think the middle is 50%, is 50 cents, right, or 50, 
uh, the, the country seems to be closer to 40 than it was at 50 before. So I think that's what he's talking about. All right, and, and one final question about the NBA. So we have a question about what, what's your sales pitch gonna be to keep the Greek freak Giannis, and I'll say his last name again for Anthony, Antetokounmpo in Milwaukee. You know, he's gonna be a free agent. Uh, I don't know if it's next off season, but next what's off. your sales pitch to him? Um, well, it's actually pretty simple. Um, I think one, he loves Milwaukee. Um, I, I think he loves the team, loves the coach, loves his teammates. But at the end of the day, we're going to be able to offer him, um, I think it ends up being about $70 million more than any other team. So, uh, you know, $70 million is a lot of money. And especially for players, because their lifespan, if you think about it, ends up being about sort of, you know, to play in the NBA is like about 10 years, 10 to 15 years. So um, the goal is to try to make as much money as you can. Um, so I think at the end of the day, you know, in, in any tie, I think he's going to give it to us. And then when you sort of add the financial aspect, I think it, it's kind of hard for him to turn it down. All right. Well, Mark, thanks again for joining us today. Anthony, I don't know if you have any parting thoughts. I want, I want to go in a stretching machine so I can make $70 million of Mark Lazary. I mean, that, that's my parting thought. I mean, you know, but Mark, know. thank you. You're, you are a, uh, you're a brilliant investor. You're a great friend and you're a patriotic American. And uh, I hope you'll come back to Salt Talks as we get geared up for the election season. You and I have always had some spirited discussions in that realm. So uh, we wish you the best at, at Avenue and the family. And God bless Sophie. And uh, we'll ho hopefully we'll see you soon. Take care, my friend. All right. God Great bless. Bye-bye.